1: Welcome to. Hey, great shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a cracked rackets and tennis channel podcast network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. It is crazy to think, but folks, we are less than seven days away from the start of the year's final Grand Slam, the 2021 U.S. Open, officially right around the corner. Of course, what does that mean for us here at Cracked Rackets? We know it is our job to prepare all of you listeners for each and every aspect of that event. That means talking top contenders. That means talking top dark horses. We want to update you on where the Americans are at entering the event. We'll break down. On the draws as they come out as well. Talk a little bit about qualifying. Again, cover each and every aspect of this tournament to ensure that you, Crack Rackets fans, remain the most well informed, the best educated tennis fans in the business. On today's podcast, we kick off those conversations with a look at the men's singles dark horses entering the event. And I could think of no better person to join me for this conversation than a returning champion here on our Crack Racket shows and editorial producer for all things Tennis Channel, Tennis.com. It is our friend David Kane, who joins me to discuss the dark horses, but also, of course, to answer the question on all of our minds as the biggest storyline and entering New York, perhaps the biggest storyline in tennis in multiple seasons, Novak Djokovic's pursuit of the calendar Grand Slam. That's going to be a conversation I'm going to have with each guest over the course of our preview series, because that's the storyline all of us are monitoring as tennis fans. But of course, we talk about that. We talk about who are the biggest threats to his run in New York. We talk then about the Dark Horse candidates, as this has been a year of generational change on the ATP Tour. We get into guys like who. Hercotts, Cam Nori, Riley Opelka, even deep dive with players like Sasha Bublik, Miomir Kecmanovic, and more. It is a fantastic conversation. I know all of you listeners are going to enjoy. Again, before we get there, a couple of quick things. A, of course, you all know these podcasts made possible because of the support we get from all of you, because of the support we get from our Crack Rackets Patreon family, and, of course, because of the support we get from our friends over at Turn of Tennis. It's the best grip in the business, the only grip that gets tackier when you sweat. It's performance in hot and humid conditions. Unmatched, and of course, it is endorsed by thousands of touring pros. You can become a member of the Turner Tennis family as well by contacting Sales at Unique Sports or calling 800-554-3707. You mentioned we here at Cracked Rackets sent you. They'll hook you up with free samples, hook you up with discounted pricing. Most importantly, treat you like family. Again, to join the Turner team, contact sales at uniquesports.com or call 800-554-3707 couple of other quick content notes a again this is the first of many u.s open preview podcasts look for them here on the great shot podcast feed or on our website cracked interviews podcast is rocking and rolling we were live in pennsylvania for the 2021 lotto elite pro tennis challenge got to talk to golbis eubanks roy smith and so many more you can find those conversations on the cracked interviews feed as well as my conversations with isabel boulet and canon kingsley our first two cracked rackets athletes of as part of something we are calling Project Elite to learn more about that. Scroll down in your GSP feed to hear my conversation with Cracked racket CEO Dalton Thienemann and of course you hear more from those two. Head on over to the Cracked Interviews podcast feed. Again, with the website Rockin' and Rolling. Look out for articles from David Gertler about the NIL, how it relates to college and pro tennis moving forward. Look out for Damian Koos talking about U.S. Open qualifying. We're locked and loaded here for the home stretch of the 2021 season. Again, all the Content can be found on the website, CrackRackets.com. But what did you come here for today? My conversation talking U.S. Open men's singles dark horses with David Kane. So without further ado, west off, roll the credits. Let's get to today's show.
0: With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice,
1: Joining us on the podcast today to help kick off our coverage of the 2021 U.S. Open, you know him as a returning champion to our cracked racket shows. He is an editorial producer for Tennis Channel, for Tennis Magazine, for Tennis.com. I know him as my friend David Kane. David, hey, great shot. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing today?
0: Hi, Alex. Great to be here. I'm giving you a bit of my pandemic repose and also a view of the New York City skyline in anticipation of the final Grand Slam of the season, but really happy to be here.
1: Oh, it is a beautiful skyline indeed. I don't see a cloud in sight. Uh, Which is really obviously a little bit different than the weather you guys have been dealing with the past few days. We were talking off mic. I guess that's off the record. I'll share it here anyways. You said it was a disappointing storm. You said it was hoping you were hoping for a little bit more. Hopefully that is not foreshadowing of the 2021 US Open, David.
0: (laughs) No, I can't say I was hoping for uh, a natural disaster. I may may be (laughs) anticipating that kind of chaos on the the court, but off the court, I was very happy for a light rainstorm followed by the sunny humidity we got today in New York City.
1: Perhaps it is. Everyone's expecting the heavy storm, the Naomi Osaka rainstorm, to come down upon the U.S. Open. The lighter rainstorm, the Ashley Barty storm. That's actually coming everyone's way. And it's like, no, this is still going to be a storm, trust me, and it's still going to do the job. But, no, I I think that's – Again, I'm glad to hear you're safe. That's how I'm going to segue out of this. And obviously, I appreciate having you on the show today. We're going to switch gears. The past two times we've had you on, we've talked WTA tennis. Obviously, you used to work for the WTA. So, you know, it's a natural topic for us to discuss. But I want to switch gears because... You know, people, I think people don't talk enough about David Kane's ATP takes. And so I want to give you the opportunity today to share some ATP takes. I want to start things off by talking about the dark horses entering this US Open. But of course, before we can do that, the biggest storyline entering New York, perhaps the biggest storyline we've had in multiple seasons in all of tennis, ATP Tour, WTA Tour, is the fact that Novak Djokovic is seeking to become the first man since Rod Laver to capture all four Grand Slam singles titles in the same calendar season. I believe he would also join Steffi Graf as the only players to do that, I want to say, in the Open era. I don't know Lavers was before the Open. It doesn't matter. It was the 60s. In the relevant era, I say that lovingly, uh, of modern tennis. And so, of course, that is the storyline above all storylines. Let's just start there. I'm going to ask this to everyone because everyone's got an opinion on this. How prohibitive of a favorite is Djokovic entering New York? When it's time to make predictions, is that the pick you're leaning towards right now?
0: Well, first of all, Alex, I really do appreciate the opportunity to discuss men, something I've long considered myself an expert in. But to be able to talk about it in men's tennis is really just a bonus. The question about Novak Djokovic, in many ways, I worry has already been answered at the Olympics. We saw him under a tremendous amount of stress and pressure in the effort to get something that meant a tremendous amount to him, that being Olympic gold, and we really saw how that bore out, especially as the medal rounds loomed, not being able to make it into the gold medal match, losing in the semifinals, and then playing a pretty disastrous bronze medal match against Pablo Carreño Busta, getting very frustrated there, reminiscent of his last U.S. Open appearance when he was defaulted in the fourth round against Carreño Busta. In many ways, you maybe you think that the U.S. Open was not the same Did not have the same gravitas as Olympic gold. It was something he's been talking about for so many years. So many Olympic cycles have passed him by without that gold medal under his belt. So in in that sense, maybe he'll come in feeling less pressure, feeling, you know, he's got in in, in a way nothing to lose. But there's still so much history on the line and really an opportunity to set himself apart from Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal, neither of whom will be participating at this year's U.S. Open. They come in at a 20-20-20 split. It's an opportunity not only become number one in that race for the first time ever. It seemingly didn't seem like anything that was possible two and a half years ago when he was at 12 and the rest were at 19 and 20. I still have to pick the field at this point, just based on the way the Olympics shook out. I, I, have, I have some confidence in the field that they're going to be able to maybe pull off something. And it would be a shame for Djokovic after the year he's had, but it would take some effort to really reverse the sort of bad juju that he kind of accumulated uh, in Tokyo.
1: Right now, Novak Djokovic is still favored against the field, according to oddsmakers. Minus 135. Now, that's about what he was heading into Wimbledon as well. So I think the oddsmakers reflect that hesitancy as well, David. And I think, you know, I want to talk about Novak Djokovic and the numbers the biggest impact in perhaps Djokovic not being as prohibitive a favorite entering the U.S. Open as he would be is the fact that Daniil Medvedev and Alex Virov has, have looked as good as they have over these past two Masters 1000s events. And for Medvedev, yes, he lost his ninth match in 11 days against Andrey Rublev in that semifinals. And yes, he was up a set in that match and it looked like he was cruising Does anyone doubt Daniil Medvedev is playing at, if not near, the best tennis of his career entering this 2021 U.S. Open? And you look at just the trajectory for him on hard courts, the last eight hard court Masters or Grand Slam events he's played. I think he's won three or, or I think he's won four of them. Finals of the Australian Open, finals of the 2019 U.S. Open as well. Semifinals last year in New York. It's about as sure of a thing as you're going to see. On a hard and, of course, on the flip side – and by the way, as someone who will always reuse a good GIF if I see it – I saw you double-giffing Emma Roberts. What was that, yesterday? I think that was yesterday, literally. It was
0: yesterday. I, I, I made some Ash Barty fans very mad when I used that, <laughs> that video of Emma Roberts seemingly casual to casually illustrate the way with which Ash Barty has dominated much of the year, and I think people kind of misinterpreted it to make it seem like she was somewhat less than deserving, but it was sort of a sort of an homage to the fact that how easy things have seemed for the Aussie, particularly, you know, Olympics notwithstanding, but through Wimbledon and now in Canada. and in Cincinnati.
1: First of all, I always appreciate someone who contextualizes their tweets. So thank you for that. I think that was the explanation. I hate people. doing it, yes. but I want
0: I felt like it was necessary based on all the quote the angry t- quote tweets I was getting. Fair, but I got fair, some followers out of it, so laughs yeah. on them.
1: Yeah, no, the flip side. <laughs> exactly. The flip side and part two of your uh, GIF reference was the fact that it is going to be problematic because we're going to have to talk about Alex Therav. And look, it continues to be inadequately Inadequately addressed by both he and the ATP Tour, despite them releasing a new policy over this past week uh, about their uh, their policy towards allegations of domestic, physical, emotional abuse, and how they're going to handle their players. Because, of course, while the ATP is a contract industry, all of these players are individual contractors. These players are representing the ATP Tour when they're on court, and it's inexcusable. It remains inexcusable for that to be for that to remain inadequately addressed. I, if you have anything to add to that in your answer, obviously please do. I do want to flip though, because on the tennis side, he's now won the 2021 Olympics or 2020 Olympics, but he you know he wins them this summer. He's now won uh, Cincinnati in relatively dominant fashion, and for him to win that CT Pos match, seven six in the third, down four one, cramping and just physically ill on the court. Something's clicked since down a set and a break to Novak Djokovic in that semifinals. The aggression he started playing with in that moment from the baseline, the aggression he played with throughout Cincinnati, I will continue to say, and this is not a new thought to listeners of the podcast, and Ben Rothenberg... I would say our mutual friend, but I despise him, so I wouldn't call him a friend. Um, But, you know, on his podcast, he makes fun of me because I said, of all of the next-gen guys, Zurev's the one who I could see someday winning 10 out of 12 or 10 out of 13 slams and just ripping off a run like that. I'm not saying he's going to do it. I'm just saying of all the guys, I think he's the one who's upside can because you have all the tools, you know, forehand, backhand, baseline, comfortable. Has gotten more and more comfortable at the net as a volley. When the serves clicking, it's easy 130 mile per hour pace, as we saw this week. You look at the slams he's made round of 16 or better at each of the last seven. It's just working for Alex Verov right now. And from a narrative perspective, we've seen it before. I prior to anything off the court, the easiest comparison to make to, for Zero for me was Andy Murray and just the early struggles of Andy Murray. And you saw all of the tools, but this passivity in the biggest moments ended up biting him in the dairy air so frequently. And then he won the Olympics, and then things changed. And it's like you look for Zverev outside of personal feelings towards him. Why is this not that?
0: Well, just to address sort of the ATP marketing nightmare that they must yeah. consider themselves in over the last couple of weeks. I mean, they've had such a beautifully simple Story to tell for the last fifteen years there of heroes and villains, and they had two heroes, and they had a villain and I yeah. let you fill in who you feel like those people are. Two of those heroes are not going to be playing the u s open and in the last week and a half, it feels like any potential heroes or herolings that we were kind of working on are seemingly a bit villainous, and i 'm talking about Tsitsipas and sort of the controversy he stirred that he stirred up with his anti vax opinions with his alleged illegal bathroom coaching um, that was uh, lampooned quite masterfully by Steve Weissman on Tennis Channel um, on Twitter over the weekend. And obviously the issue with, um, with Zverev, which is long and looming and I would say credible. It's a credible allegation, though it is an allegation. And I think in terms of covering Zverev in the media, it makes it sort of a tricky situation because I think we're used to things being quite... Easy in, in in the sense that we're used to having these unquestionably hardworking good people with no you know blights on their um, on their potentially character and I think that that's where you draw the line between reporting and profiling or spotlighting I feel like you can re, you have to be able to draw the line where you're giving the results and maybe not doing that extra mile that she would be going for if it was somebody if it was had Rublev won Cincinnati it probably would have been a you would have gotten a bit more of a positive oomph um, that you really it feels strange to apply to zverev and they're fans of his and you know people who think that that's unfair but i think it's just a reality that while that cloud looms over him it makes it difficult to go all in um to add to that quickly before yeah.
1: i before i let you get to the zero of tennis point you talk about the villain narrative that's emerged for these next geners you mentioned the ct pass Medvedev kicks over a camera. And by the way, last time it was in this time it's lampooned. That's the word I'm taking from this, just so you know. (laughs) That's the word I'm adding to my dictionary. (laughs) But uh, no, I mean – you're right i uh, the only one's barrettini who just i guess he's too handsome to be a villain like we just we've even rublev's got a nasty streak to him there's some anger there no doubt about that and the way he harnesses his anger is almost a redeeming quality and the way that anger manifests itself and just he swings harder at the ball than anyone i've ever seen play tennis before and you can hear him grunt as he's swinging that hard um as it it just – you're right. Like I, I think that's very fair to say. You're you're absolutely right. There's, these top guys – there's no obvious hero in this story on the men's side entering the 2021 U.S. Open like barring a Jensen Brooksby run. Maybe he's the hero, the white knight we all need. Like he's the one being in D.C. I think everyone could get behind him or maybe – like it's too soon for Sinner. It's too exactly. soon for FA. They haven't had that moment yet. The guys who are ready, to your point, I, I think that's excellently put and I hadn't thought about it like that. It's just not that warm. It, I mean, again, this is a little straw, Manny, when we say it's not that warm. It's a microcosm of tennis Twitter, which are just the loudest fans. But it's not the warmest reception towards them.
0: No, because I think it's, you know, we get into this sort of autopilot when, you know, we use words and descriptions of players. And it feels, it just feels strange to apply them to the sort of your... um your your Zverev's, you yes, your Medvedev's, who is yeah, an, Ill, an ill-placed camera away from winning both Canada and Cincinnati. And we think of Medvedev as sort of a reformed villain, like someone who came on with a lot of villainous energy and kind he of managed to New turn York. it... He flipped off New York! He flipped him t- off! But turns it around in the space of a, the same U.S. Open <laughs> and has become, Cincinnati incident notwithstanding, sort of the, like, I think I called him like a beloved performance artist, yeah. just the way that he attacks the game, the way that he's been able to really charm it's been a charm offensive and maybe that's what we're looking for from we are looking for redemption in many ways from our athletes even when they are um when they do things wrong or they're in a position i think the lack of acknowledgments or the lack of ownership in some of these things whether it is what sits and since are ever dealing with or it's i mean obviously Again, we're painting with a broad brush. There is a gradient of perceived offenses, even with Djokovic. I mean, there was, again, comparison to the things that Djokovic has been accused of in terms of his anti-vax opinions. I think there's such a wide spectrum. It's just things that we didn't have to talk about two years ago, and the pandemic has really just brought out a whole another level of nuance in this sort of simplistic um, descriptions that we we've gotten so used to, but all of which to say, yeah, I mean, I think if you're in, if you're dealing with a final between Djokovic and Zverev, I think you're. The tennis world at large is probably unclear exactly who to root for. Now, I as think, someone who's covering the sport, I don't root for anyone.
1: Yeah, I know. amen to that. <laughs> it really has been – I'm really – I'm grateful because I get to cover a lot of college tennis and all of the coaches, the players have just accepted that I'm going to root for Michigan. It's like, yeah, that's your school. You get one. And I'm like, oh, I appreciate that. Like, I'll take my one. Thank you. And so obviously you see it here. I'm ripping the M on my chest. Um, I, I, You're right. It, it will be interesting to just see – Because the storyline of a 21st Novak Djokovic Grand Slam is so fascinating. It would be obviously, again, the calendar slam completed as well. And I'm going to ask you, save the thoughts on the biggest threat to Djokovic of the tsitsipas medvedev Sverev trio. uh, Because we'll get back to that momentarily. But to get back to where the uh, question started, I suppose. And, you know, again, this is, if we're not going to go under an hour, that was why, David. Uh, But you look for Novak Djokovic here this season. 38 and 5. It's pretty damn good. You look at his numbers compared to the past. He's holding 87.2% of the time. That number is good for fourth highest in his career. It trails 2011 2011- 2015, 2016, uh, and now obviously this year would be number four. You look for him in terms of his first serve win percentage. He's winning 75.5% of his first serve points. That's second highest in his career to only 2019. Speaks to the fact he's aware I got to make points a little bit shorter. I got to be a little bit more uh, successful with my first serve. He is doing as much. His ace percentage even, 8.3%, that's a career high as well. Of course, you look at the break percentage, 344 That's third only to his 2011 and 2015 seasons. All of this is to say, I know he lost at the Olympics. I throw out that bronze medal match because he was there for the gold, nothing else. And I know that's Mm -hmm. disingenuous to Pablo Carino Busta, who ends up winning that match in three sets, but I'm not holding that as a data point against Novak Djokovic. What I am asking you, David, is, is Djokovic's best still prohibitively better then Zverev and Medvedev, and do you think he will be close enough to that best to capture this Grand Slam?
0: I think if Djokovic makes it past the semis, I think he's the prohibitive favorite against whoever he comes across in the final. I would say quarters, but just based on, again, how the way the Olympics shook out, and just the fact that when you bring up 2011, 2015, these years that Djokovic was everywhere and winning everywhere in many ways if you take out the slam results, which is impossible to do, but just for argument's sake, let's pretend he didn't play the first three slams. It would be sort of a disappointing year. I mean, he wasn't dominating off the slams in the way that he was in a lot of these other more dominant seasons. And so... Of course though he's managed to peak at the best tournaments and that's ultimately in a race in this three way in this three way race, that's all you want from a top player like Djokovic. And so yeah, I think he's certain his best is certainly better than Medvedev's that was proven in the Australian open final and better than Zverev's in Best of Five. I think there are just too many elements against um these younger guys or these less experienced guys against Djokovic in the final kind of reminds me of, again, it's very similar to Serena in 2015. If should she have gotten past that semifinal, I would have probably given her better odds against Flavia Panetta in the final, but it was just that tricky semifinal being on the precipice of what was going to be this huge career, massive moment for you and having that, that sort of mental block just, at, just short of the finish line.
1: Yeah. I mean, the counter Djokovic fans would make drop two sets at Wimbledon beat Rafa at the French, was Mm. bad through the first five matches at the Australian Open. He cleaned a 23-match winning streaker, or whatever it was, Daniil Medvedev, who at the time had a hold percentage higher than prime John Isner, had a break percentage higher than prime Djokovic and Nadal. And he tooled him in three sets. And it was just, when Novak Djokovic hits that mode, he's better than everyone else. He still is. And the numbers say it, you know, Tim Medvedev's the only guys who are top 10 in hold and break percentage right now. It's Djokovic and everyone else, and I know he hasn't played in a month, but uh, you know who's deserved a month's sabbatical? Novak freaking Djokovic. Like, it, it reminds me, I was watching The Last Dance in the Michael Jordan documentary when Dennis Rodman goes on his little vacation, he's like, I need a vacation, and Michael Jordan's like, you know who needs a vacation? Me. And it's like, you know who needed a vacation? Novak Djokovic. And like, I'm just saying, a month off? I think it's really good for him, especially with something of this of gratitu- uh, this uh, gravitas coming up on the schedule and just like, I know it's been a lot of tennis on his body, but he does his voodoo shit over in Serbia and he'll come back here and I just think he's going to be ready to rock and roll. And just like, uh, he's Novak Djokovic, he's earned the benefit of the doubt, that is why right now he is my prohibitive favorite. Anything else to say on that?
0: Just that I feel like voodoo shit is probably going to show up on a subpoena one day. <laughs> so, it's just between us.
1: Yeah, I say that lovingly. By the way, that's <laughs> not a nefarious thing. I just don't know how else to describe it. What? It's not earthly what Novak Djokovic has done. He's thirty. You know what else is the biggest difference between 2015 and 2011? There's not a two to start his age anymore, David. He's 34 or 35, uh, 34. There's the math. There it is. 35 is next year. But he's 34 years old. And it's just... It continues to be amazing. Like It really does, particularly given precipitous is too strong of a word, but evident declines we've seen from both Roger and Rafa this year. It's like you saw it from both of them. You did not see that from Novak this year. And I know he's a year younger than Rafa, and Federer, he's 40. It doesn't count. But he if if you sh- like again Novak Djokovic is closer to his 2015 level than Rafa and Roger is, are to their respective primes
0: how does this compare to Federer at his 2017 level 2017 2018 when he won his three slams like is is it sort of that candle burns the brightest right before it goes no, out no because like-
1: i think Djokovic's I, or i excuse me i think Federer's slams were a product of the environment i, I it's if you seen it's, uh, have you seen the departed
0: no. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's not a
1: David Kane movie. Um, all right. Well, I was going to quote it because when he's – at the beginning, he's like, I don't want to be i pro- – I'm not going to quote it right now. The point being that line is what got me going there. Federer's titles were a product of the 2017 environment. There sure. was no Djokovic. Murray was banged up and not playing. Mm-hmm. Stan was not like Stan's little blip. I don't think it, it applied to that little moment. Like you had that was the year Nishikori made four quarterfinals, correct? I want to say was 2017 at the Slams, and I if not, it was right around then. That was one like Ranich Dimitrov. That year was a byproduct of the Lost Gen being exactly that, the Lost Gen. Mm-hmm. I think the level of competition is a little bit harder for Novak right now. And so, no, I don't think it's a candle shine brightest. I think this is Novak having to play his best tennis because, and this can get us to segueing to his biggest threats. I think the other guys are right there now. Yeah, well done, David. I think the other guys are really, really close uh, to being on the level to win Grand Slams. They've done it everywhere else. Who's your multi-time Masters uh, champion this year It's Sphere F? Who look about as dominant as you could look through seven consecutive matches in Montreal and Cincinnati that's Daniil Medvedev who's just got the gravitas that we all seem to believe he has the intangible it quality you need to become a Grand Slam champion respectfully I think that's Stefano Tsitsipas and like Berrettini just made a final Mm -hmm. Rublev's best still looks really really good everyone's entertained by the sin man. He's not quite there yet, but there's just enough guys taking bites at the apple that I guess my question to you David would be outside of Novak Djokovic, how open is this US Open? Do we finally have a new hierarchy, I suppose, in men- on the men's tennis side?
0: I mean, it's I think it's you're in a position potentially similar to the 2020 US Open without Federer and Nadal. Should Djokovic go out early, Which is the only foreseeable situation i see standing between him and this 21st major title calendar year grand slam should he go out to an awesome karatsev in the third or fourth round i think then you would see the draw radically shift and then i wouldn't necessarily give any one of those medvedevs verevs titsipas i would probably shift that i'd probably rank it Medvedev, titsipas verev just based on best of five experience who is most likely to win of those three should they all be still in the tournament at that point but um i don't necessarily i still think without djokovic nadal federer any winner is gonna feel weird (laughs) just based on history and then i think none of those guys have none of them having won a major before you you can't really peg any of them as potential as guarantees to step up to the plate in the absence of Djokovic. as much as they've improved They've still got to do it, you know, and there could also just be the long-term physical and emotional consequences of that, as we've seen from Dominic Team winning last year. So I think I would be hard as as close as the field has gotten. I would be hard pressed to pick a solid number two behind Djokovic. If that makes sense.
1: I think there's two guys who are, with all due respect to Cici Paz, it's Medvedev and Zverev, and the numbers reflect as much. Who are the? I've I met you know. I like my clubs. There's the top ten, top fifteen, top twenty club, top ten in both hold and break percentage, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There are three guys who are top ten in both, and it makes sense, doesn't it? When I tell you it's Djokovic, Medvedev, and Zverev, like that. If you've watched the ATP tour closely over the last fifty-two weeks, I think those three players have been pretty unequivocally the best three. Now you expand into a top ten, uh, top fifteen club. Rafa enters that list. Andre Rublev enters that list. I also think it's fair to say week in, week out, they've been a tier below those guys. And again, the the analytics, the math in tennis, difficult to take it on face value because a blowout win is always going to lopside your results, and every match is one data point. There's just not that many data points when you're playing with fewer than 100 throughout the course of a season. It's a small sample size, et cetera, et cetera. But when the math so directly reflects what you're seeing unfold with your eyes, you're probably on to something. And just like... I think there's a reason, though, three guys are on the list. And I do think, watching with my eyes, Zverev... I mean, we saw it at the Olympics, literally, with Alex Zverev over Novak Djokovic. Now, it was two out of three sets, but it was a dominant two out of three sets. And honestly, if you go back to the Australian Open and you're honest with yourself, Zverev was the better player in their matchup when they played at the Australian Open. He was up breaks in set three and four and probably should have won the first set as well. I think he was up a break in that one, too. And just you know you're right on a grand slam final it's a different ball game but if that's the semi-final I think Zverev can beat him and again it it always hurts me to say this uh, go read Ben's article I I can't emphasize that enough like it's it you're right it's a sticky sticky place to be but I think from a tennis perspective Zverev's the guy narrative perspective it matches up and then for Medvedev the case is just obvious it's like look at his results
0: in a semifinal, I'm more likely to give one of those three guys the deference I or just the, the chance, the half a chance. I would be, I still think based on a lot of what you already said about how Djokovic has been able to raise his level to match that field, I think as close as he can get that might be the initiative that kind of helps Djokovic kind of forget the nerves of the calendar year grand slam. And remember, this is a really tough opponent in front of me that I have to be on my game for. I mean, we saw it even at the Wimbledon final against um, Berrettini. I mean, Djokovic was pretty nervy in sections, but really kind of steadied and knew that he had a tough opponent, someone who served really well on the grass could really give him trouble if he did not stay as focused as he needed to be and he was able to win that match and win his 20th major so yeah no disrespect to the to the the second line i just think i i think back to that 2020 u.s open final between team and zverev that was a nervy nervy final of two guys who knew that they had this huge opportunity in front of them and i think you know, against Djokovic, it's going to make it that much harder for them in a moment that they know that they can I mean, even with Tsitsipas being up two sets to nothing on Djokovic in the final, the French open a match that I really think that Tsitsipas should have walked away with, particularly as close as it got early in that third set with Tsitsipas saving those break points. Had he dug out of that game, maybe he, it could have been a very different story and we'd have a totally different podcast right now. I'd probably be previewing the women right now. Who knows <laughs> the, just the, the way things change on a dime. But yeah, I think, um, in many ways it's still it's in the latter in the most important rounds against the best players it's or bust in a sort of wide open battle royale i i do give the field a bit more of a shot
1: well let's talk about that field now because again it does feel like you look at the quarterfinals, Tsitsipas, Medvedev, Zverev, all guys you probably lock into that round. Tsitsipas may be the least of the group. You look beyond that, probably a tier lower. You have a guy like Andre Rublev and Matteo Berrettini who have certainly, you know, we've seen them now in second weeks, particularly at hard court slams. We know what they're capable of. After that, there's a lot of uncertainty. And I just want to read to you right now, in the race to the year-end finals, I'm removing Rafa from this list because, obviously, he's out for the season.
0: Casper Rude— Oh, is he? Moved. I hadn't heard. Yeah,
1: it's breaking news here at Crack Records. That's actually an exclusive. Casper um, Rude up to seventh. I can't disagree with that. Hubie Hercotts, Miami champion. Up to eighth. After that, you've got Sinner ninth, Karatsev tenth, Nori eleventh, the last of the lost gen hopes, Pablo Carino Busta at twelve. Then you get into a Shapovalov, FAA, RBA, Senego sort of tier. Let's start with that first group of players. And again, you know I love tiers here, David. You know I, I'm i a lampoon of a tier, of a, of a, of a recruiting a, list. There it is. A
0: connoisseur of tiers. A connoisseur of tiers. Yeah, there's I, a bonus one for you. Yeah.
1: <laughs> connoisseur, come on. That's an easy one. Um, but anyways, looking at that list of guys, let's start with just that group. Because if we say five six of the spots – Djokovic, Tsitsipas, Medvedev, Zverev, Rublev, Berrettini, Erlachs. Are any of that group, Rude, Hercats, Sinner, Karatsev, PCB, and honestly, with the results he's had this year, I think Cam Norrie belongs in that discussion. Which of them are you most intrigued by heading into this U.S. Open as someone who can make a legitimate second-week run?
0: I mean, talking about looking for a hero on the ATP Tour, just going through that whole bracket, it just feels like, oh, there's so many just— hardworking, pure of heart, young gentleman, just like gearing up for a grand slam breakthrough. I mean, I think you obviously have to look at Hubert Herkos, who really turned around what could have been a disastrous spring from the clay into Wimbledon, then having that massive win over Roger Federer, Um, obviously being a hard court contender, winning Miami over Yannick Sinner, um, a match that I think maybe people thought that Sinner, with just all of his potential and hype, and sort of talk about like a narrative push, I kind of thought that Sinner would end up solving that one against his good friend and Doubles partner. But I think Herc has his weapons and sort of calm demeanor is sort of a nice foil to some of the um, the nuttier person, the nuttier, more established personalities that we've gotten used to in that top six bracket. Um, I think the other one, you, and I think when you when you want to look at Barnstormers, people who can, you know steal and and take that those missing those spots that are up for grabs i think you have to look at an oslin karatsev who has really just continued to back up that australian open semi-final run just phenomenal power sort of like a a two-handed backhand answer to a stan wawrinka just in that sheer velocity and weight of shot you know played a really great olympics with uh, elena viznina you didn't think i was going to make it through a men's podcast without mentioning elena viznina You thought wrong. I was going to say,
1: I was figuring the over-under was 30 minutes in. You made it to 31. So bravo.
0: She's (laughs) not in New York, so I had to to sneak (laughs) it in. Um, So I think, yeah, if you're looking at, like, the the players who can kind of cut through the hype and can just really use their weapons and kind of stump people, depending on how quickly the courts are playing, I think you're looking at a Herkaz and a Karatsov for sure.
1: Yeah, let's start with Hubi Hercat's number 13 in the rankings right now, 13 in uh, 2021 specific ELO, 19th in overall ELO. He's a big match player, and you look at his results here, again, during this 2021 season. You know, the big runs for him. He wins that Miami Masters event. He beats Rublev, Sinner, Tsitsipas, Reynich, Shapovalov. He makes semifinals of Wimbledon, beats Medvedev. Federer obviously gets a win over Bublik. Honestly, two wins over Giron and Musetti as well. I think it was steady for him. Like, quarterfinals, round of 16 in Canada and at Cincinnati— those are the sort of results that he's been lacking because you look for him. It was a six-match losing streak, I think, between the win in Miami and his first-round win at Wimbledon, and or excuse me, his first-round win in Monte Carlo and his first-round win at Wimbledon. That's three months of first-round losses. And for Hubie, I think the most you know entertaining stat for him against top fifty players in 2021, he's twelve and eight. Against top twenty players, he's six and five. Against the top ten, he's four and three. He brings his best against the best. And he has flat. You know, he's your definition of a modern player. Six foot six. Easy, you know, power on the serve, can hit 125 to 130 with ease and fluidity around the court, has an all-court game as well, comfortable moving forward, taking the ball early on the rise, creative and seems to be at his best when things during the point break down. I mean, you look for him in terms of, you know, his hold percentage, he's a top 20 hold uh, server on tour, he's holding 84% of the time. For him, it's the lapses in concentration. I think he's more likely to lose a first-round match than he is a third-round match. And just you look for him at the Grand Slams here in this season in particular. You know, you go back to the French Open. Yes, Botick Vondesenskul played well, but that was a puzzling first-round loss. You go back to Australia. Five-set loss to Mikhail Emer. That was a puzzling one last year. First-round French Open, the loss to Sandgren. Those are all matches, five sets, but matches he should have won. And so for him, it's almost the first-round demons. He gets through that. I agree with you. From an upside standpoint, I just think the better the competition, the better the Hubie.
0: I'm just still stuck on how quickly we we're able to pronounce Boten von des was just A lot of
1: practice. So I was corrected really by someone. Botik von sculpt. Always, when in doubt, it's a C. It's a hard C. Hard C-K.
0: Sure. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think yeah, going back to to Hubie, I mean, I think you talk about, you know, the just that phenomenally close match that he lost to Medvedev in Canada and just sort of the tie breaks to Karina Busta in Cincinnati. It's those sort of small margins are going to mean a lot. But then at the same time, having the extra set or two to play with, I mean, Medvedev beat him in best of three, lost him at Wimbledon best of five. I think he's a player who can kind of benefit if you're having lapses in concentration. You can afford a 20-minute lapse. That's only one set, and that's not a third of the match as it would be uh on the regular tour and so i think that might be something that benefits him and it's probably part of why he was able to show up as strongly as he did at wimbledon sort of shake off that those clay court demons that really plagued him since that cursed monte carlo press conference that was announced not announced huh. given no notice he showed up but no one was there it was really really kicked off a long uh, arduous yeah, yeah everyone lost from there
1: was, yeah no i agree with you and- where I disagree, I'm not done with Karatsev, but he's no longer the GOAT. Like, I just think we see, like, okay, he's good. He's very, very good. He belongs in the top 50. He belongs at the ATP level. He's not going to be a top 10 guy. I don't know if this is the best Cam Norrie's going to be. Like, I really... and Look, I would talk about Kasparud. I'm going to talk about him when we do our ATP contenders. I'm going to try and slide him into that conversation there. That way we don't go an hour and a half here, David. But... Cam Norrie feels like he belongs in a podcast about the Dark Horses entering this 2021 U.S. Open because when you look at Cam Norrie's results, simply put, he has been one of the 15 best players on the ATP Tour this season. And you look for him in the race to the year on finals. I mentioned it already. He's 12th. You look at the advanced metrics, thir- uh, 14th, excuse me, in over uh, in 2021 specific ELO rating. You look for him 18th in overall ELO rating. You look for him just in terms of his results here on the season. Cam Norrie, I think, is third right now in terms of total wins. He's 41 and 18, David in 2021 that includes winning his first ATP title in Los Cabos about a month ago he made a final in Queens Club made a final in Lyon makes third round of Wimbledon before losing to Fed makes third round Roland Garros before losing to Rafael Nadal even made third round Australian Open this year before losing to Rafa he's held seed the way someone who's now ranked 28th should but given the fact that your top three seeds aren't you know Roger, Rafa, Novak in their primes. Yes, if you draw number one seed Novak Djokovic, which at, I think he's currently ranked twenty eighth. I don't think, given all the withdrawals he's going to end up doing, then you'd say, okay, that's tough for him to get past the third round. But if he draws a Berrettini, or if he draws a Rublev, or honestly, even if he draws a Tsitsipas, like outside of maybe Medvedev, Zverev, Djokovic, who, as you can tell, I, they are my top tier entering this U.S. Open. I think Norrie can beat anyone else in the field, and he's a top, I think, 10 returner right now by break percentage. He's breaking serve 28.5% of the time. If you're breaking serve more than a quarter of the time on the ATP tour, you are doing it at an elite rate. And so I just think, especially hard courts now for Cam Norrie, like if he ends up in the quarterfinals, with yes, he has a 28 seed next to his name, but he's been a top 10 guy on hard courts this year
0: it's you know it's tough for me to pick a, a Brit over a Russian in terms of potential <laughs> I mean like the talk about facts and feelings my well, I'd feelings still take are typically I'd still take favor-
1: Medvedev <laughs> and I'd probably still take Rublev but I would really think about it with the Rublev match in general just the way Cam moves the ball around the court it's not overwhelming power but hey he's as fit of a player you are going to find right now in the men's game and just again the harder you hit the ball at him the more it allows him to, the more power it provides him because he's going to hit all of his spots.
0: I guess what really kind of stops me, I mean, it's funny with perception. Like, perception's always, like, 6 to 12 months behind reality in terms of these players, I and mean, we're still just getting, I'm still kind of wrapping my head around the fact that Nori is sort of a lock in many ways to hold his seed. I mean, that said, it hasn't really been the most impressive U.S. Open swing since... Um, winning in Los Cabos, losing early in, losing in the quarterfinals to Roussevori in Atlanta, losing to Nishikori from a setup in Washington, and then losing in the opening round to both Khachanov and Isner, two very difficult opening rounds. Surely he will not get that tough of a first round in New York. I just, you know, you think of who has done it, of Nori and Karatsev, Karatsev's done it. He's made a Grand Slam semifinal, and granted it was, you know, crazy, and he did get a retirement over Dimitrov um, in the quarters. But, you know, I just think in a slam where you're dealing with fine margins and upset potentials against, yeah, I think in many ways, as much as I enjoy Rublev and think he's, you know, kind of in it with that top tier, I do, I would peg him as someone who would go out potentially early to a Nori or a Karatsev, just because for some reason at a slam this year, just hasn't been the same efficacy as it might've been at a Monte Carlo or even this week in Cincinnati. So, I mean, I think it's, it's certainly a fair pick and in many ways, I would almost give Nori and Karatsev an equal shot against Djokovic in the third round or fourth round. I think that those—that that is exactly the kind of player who could really trouble him, someone who doesn't have that same resume and same gravitas, but someone who can really take it to Djokovic, because I think those top-tier guys are really going to force Djokovic to play his best in a way that a Cam Nori, who it's just so easy to kind of think of him as what he used to be and not what he's currently working himself up to being.
1: It's fair. I feel like I should be calling you David Kenev. Like, that's your Russian name. Like, it's, oh, it's Kenyav. Good to see you. Oh, Kenyav, yes. Um, You know. uh, But anyways, yeah, I – here's what I'll say. I watched him beat Schwartzman last year, three out of five-set match uh, at the U.S. Open, five-set victory for Nori. He comes back from two sets to love down. And I just feel like that – to have that breakthrough at the U.S. Open, that's why I'm not afraid of him in the first week, getting through like a a 12 seed in his uh, third-round match because he's done that before. You're right. When we get to the quarterfinal stage – then we start to think about it a little bit more. But in terms of my category of dark horse, a guy who's going to be seated outside the top 20, who you can expect to see in the second week, maybe even in the quarterfinals. If I tell you it is Nori versus Medvedev in that quarterfinal round, I think that's a fit. like that's to me that's a successful. That I don't want to say that's the expectation, but that to me would be a successful Cam Nori appearance, uh, a successful U.S. Open for Cam Nori
0: absolutely i I think that's that is the the transition now it's can you do it at the grand slam exactly
1: exactly i agree Kenyev. i agree um (laughs) all right let's move on to our next player i want to open it up to you uh because i asked you to come in with a list i gave you different categories of players as well who's the next dark horse candidate someone not on the forefront of everyone's mind that you'll be watching at this u.s open
0: I mean, it's pretty, I feel like it's, I hope I'm not stealing this one. I would have to say Riley Opelka. This sort He's of on game. my list. That's
1: good. I'm glad we have overlap. That helps us avoid the hour and a half mark. Make the case. But
0: between him and noted pop star Lorenzo Sonego. I had to go with uh, <laughs> Opelka. I just, I really like Opelka's approach to the game. And that is to say, I mean, the, the comparisons to Isner are easy and obvious and increasingly lazy, because I think we've seen John Isner play his game for better or for worse for the last almost, you know, 15 going on almost 20 years it feels like at this point and just not developing into the kind of player who if he's not playing serving at an unbeatable godlike level can beat the best in the game and I think we're hearing a lot of about Opelka knowing what weapons he has in terms of his serve in terms of his height and trying to really develop a forehand that can compete with the game's best and i think that willingness to grow learn and change at that age still only 23 years old is tremendously encouraging and i think when you are dealing with someone like that who's got a good head on his shoulders who is willing to not just rely on his natural gifts that makes him a very scary opposition i mean so i think that that's someone who playing in front of a home crowd having the crowd energy an american underdog against one of these big players i mean if you're looking for someone again someone who even more i would say maybe perhaps than kratsev or nori could really be that one to end potentially that calendar year grand slam on a you know thunderous u.s open night session on arthur stadium
1: you want to guess riley opelka's record in 2021
0: i don't have to you're going to tell me (laughs) 16
1: and 16 16 and 16. So you think about it. He gets the five wins in Canada. He gets the four wins in Rome. Nine and two there. Seven and 14 everywhere else. Pardon the pun. High upside player, David. Like, there's no denying that upside is there. When the serve is landing, you just start there. And I think he's, like, fourth right now in hold percentage. It's Isner, Rayanich, Berrettini, him. Obviously, the Rayanich sample size gets smaller and smaller with every passing day. And yet it still feels like he's got another level to go as a server, right? Like, it just feels like he hasn't fully tapped into the power of the second serve. His second serve win percentage is still about 10% behind where John Isner's is. And just, you're right. Watching him slap down on forehands against Tsitsipas, use that Tsitsipas topsman and be like, oh, perfect. Now literally all I have to do is slap, and that ball isn't going to come down. And it freaking worked. And you're just like, I mean, it's I've, we've had this conversation before – I, I hate evoking his name twice because, again, he's not that important. But we did a tiers conversation back in 2018, the original next-gen tiers pod, which we do at the end of every season. Ben and I just kind of saying, who are the guys of those 96 and laters that we think are going to win Grand Slams? And I think the moment we realized we were going to like each other is we both had Riley Opelka in Tier 1 because it was like, let's just – there's more to it than just big man, big serve, big game. You watch the backhand. It's good. Like, it's not exceptional, but it's good. Like, his ability to concisely hit through that ball as a return, it's not an issue for him. Now, the forehand backswing gets big, but it's gotten a lot better. And just, you shouldn't be able to move as well as someone does at his size. And, of course, you know, he's coming in confident. And it's been disappointing for him. You know, certainly Wimbledon, the loss to Kofor, not what he was expecting. You go back to Australia, five-set loss for him to Taylor Fritz. Hasn't made a second week at a slam this year. That feels like a missing piece for him. Uh, I mean, it's certainly draw dependent, but he's going to be well-seeded. He'll get a shot at a guy. You know, if it's him versus Shapovalov or him versus Bautista Gute, there's no reason Opelka can't win that third-round match. I mean, if he the, the thing is, when Riley's bad, it's bad. Like, no one is more fine tanking a game and throwing away the set and being like, you know, I'll get him next time. Then Riley Opelka, and there's no shame in that. That's the game style he plays. That's the concern, and that's why I just think Cam Norrie's is a sure thing. Like, I know what I'm getting from Cam Norrie for four and a half hours, if it need be, over the course of a best-of-five-set match. Still don't know that answer for Riley. That's why I, I, if you're taking who goes further, I would take Norrie over Riley. But Riley certainly has the upside. There's no doubt about
0: that. I mean, even looking back at the result in Rome, I mean, it's, it would be easy to say that, you know, I I would have believed that in Madrid, but I mean, the fact that it happened in Rome, the the surface that is probably most, you know, probably up there with Monte Carlo, but certainly... and I think of the women's tour. We think of Rome as just being completely analogous to Roland Garros, and a very good predictor of who's going to do well at that tournament. So the fact that he was able to hit through that kind of surface gives me all the more confidence that he can do it again on a hard court. And I just think that you know, starting the year sort of undercooked and playing his way into it, and, and getting these results in the spring, now in the summer, kind of embracing his identity as like you know having the the serve bot jokes with Isner. I think it's all good, positive momentum. And I think, you know, just having, and there's something to be said about having that, um, junior pedigree. I think when you make the transition, it can be difficult. We obviously saw what happened with Ash Barty dealing with that pressure, but once you end up in that top tier position, it sort of becomes a bit like muscle memory. It's like, okay, I remember this pressure. I remember these expectations. They were on me as a junior. Now I can deal with it, um, as a pro. And I think the more big results he racks up, they'll kind of build upon each other so whether it can happen in new york i guess it's you know it, it's remains to be seen i think i would still pick him over Norrie, just because i i i think it slams you go for shock value in many in many ways you go for the the big guy with the big game because they're the ones they're going to take those opportunities
1: fair but guess what david i uh, sorry guess what Kanyev? friends disagree <laughs> Friends disagree. (laughs) We're allowed to disagree. Nothing wrong with that. Um, But all right, we both had Opelka on our list. I want to go back to you as well. Give me another name. I know. I've got a couple left. I have one I know is not going to be on your list that I don't know what other podcast I could talk about it. So I'm going to do it on this one. But I'm going to save that name for last. Again, we're going to be doing a contender – just for our listeners who want to know, we are going to be doing a contender-specific podcast. I might just cut the first 30 minutes from this and use that because that was pretty damn good, David. I appreciate the double duty there. Um, But we're going to do that. We're going to do an American-specific one. So, uh, you know, I'm – I'll rehash that Opelka, but Fritz, Tiafo, is a big guy I would have on my list otherwise. Brooksby, Nakashima are obvious dark horses. I'm going to be saving them for the Americans, uh, so I apologize if I just stomped on any of your names there, David, as well. Um, you know, a guy like Mackie playing super, super well, Marcos Giron, even Stevie Johnson I think is starting to play some inspired, and honestly, just, he's fit again. He's taking tennis seriously 100% right now in front of these crowds, wants to stay inside the top 100. All those, conversations and then the corresponding women's conversations as well going to be coming up this week but all that said David I think I bought you some time Give me another name on your list.
0: Only because you promised we could talk about him for twenty-five to thirty minutes. I'm gonna go with Alexander Bublik. I feel uh. like he's so due. He is so due to just completely win over a New York City crowd. I feel like he, you know, as as well as he played at Wimbledon, and as well as he played in, at Roland Garros in men's doubles, to his own shock and chagrin in many in many respects. I think that you know. I think that this is again. You look for someone who's going to have that charisma and take advantage of the opportunities in front of them. And sometimes, you know, it can go terribly, terribly wrong. I mean, but I think based on the fact that he was able to take a set from Daniel in Canada, um, I think that, and even just having that, you know, tough match against Iran in Cincinnati. I think you know, it, it's a it's a level of commitment that you know you want to see from someone like Bublik. Because the question with someone like him, it's not the natural talent, is where is the motivation, where is the fitness, and to be able to play a long, tough match against an American in the United States, kind of tease him up well for what could be potentially some. Some tough opening round matches where he could potentially be an underdog, be the crowd favorite. You know, you never really know what you're going to get. And so I would really like to see him um, break through and, and, and make it into a Grand Slam quarterfinal. It was up to me, but it's, fortunately it's not.
1: I've made the comp before. It's Nick Kyrgios with Worth's Press. He's very much a high upside guy. And yet... There's just more to him than that. Like his break percentage is atrocious, David. It is, you know, he's in that 10 percent and under club, which is like him, Isner, and Riley. And it's like, I say this lovingly, you know who you don't want to hang out with in a club if it's returners and it's Isner and Opelka. It's the serve bots. And the thing is, Bublik's more than a serve bot. Like he really is. His best tennis. The size he has, again, it's curious. esque It just feels like there's not a lot on a tennis court Sasha Bublik can't do. And, of course, you look for him. I think he's 49th right now in overall ELO. You look for him 2021 20, specifically. Bublik uh, currently 38th in that number, ranked 37th overall. You look for him over his last 52. He's currently uh, 33 and 32 overall. But in 2021 here, he's 28 and 22 you know, against a lot of hot starts and finishes, but you look at his losses, you know, his last five losses, Medvedev, Medvedev, Anderson, 7-5 in the third at Newport, Nishikori at the City Open, Kay went on to make the semifinals, he loses to a resurgent Dimitrov in Cincy as well, and you know, he's losing to a lot of players who are ranked above him, who you know, over two hours, the focus they bring, the consistency they bring, that's what beats Sasha Bublik. In terms of a tools perspective, he can crank 130 with ease. He can hit the drop shot with ease. He can do anything with ease, and he moves pretty well for a guy his size. You don't think of him as, you know, again, it's him, Hubi Hercats, Karen Hatchinov, like Zverev, Medvedev, all of them. That's what modern men's tennis is. You're 6'6". Arthur Rindernesh, even, who deserves a shout-out on this dark horse list. If he makes a second, third round, that should shock no one. He's been a top 50 guy in the race this season. I think all of these guys are excellent. But, like, I agree with you. Bublik's upside. I mean, you look for him. Let's look this season. Against top 10 players. Shout-out to our friends over at Tennis Abstract. Bublik, 2-3. Beat Berrettini in Italia, beat Zverev in Rotterdam, lost three times to Medvedev, two of the three in three sets. There's your case. Like, I, good call. Hey, great shot, as we say on this podcast, Kanyev, uh, because I think that's, that's just—yeah, Bubla can do it.
0: And made the third round last last time he played the U.S. Open in 2019 and, and probably should have made it past Duhar in the third round, but just had played two— really wacky five set matches to get out of the um the vacated team section that ended up um, would depriving us of what could have been a very crazy uh fourth round between him and Monfils. but I think you know there's just a maturation happening a slow reflective maturation happening that is conducive I think in more and more so to a run through the first first week of Islam let would say first and second week yeah. <laughs> it's like a crazy but I think um <laughs> I think for sure. I I would really, I would really like to see it. And I think that based on the way he played through the the Newport and through the summer, I would have loved to have seen him win Newport. I really thought we were working our way up to that. If I had seen that, maybe I would be even more confident in his ability to really um, knock it out of the park in New York. But I think even without that, um, I feel like he's due. He's due for like a a wild result. And I mean, if we're going to, if we're going to contrast Australia to Karatsev's work workmanlike you know just powerful run to the to the semifinals why not a Bublik run to the semis in New York to sort of offset that i think it would be a great uh, contrast to look back on after this uh, this crazy year is over
1: If he had the same f*** you attitude as Kostiuk, they would be the perfect player comps for one another. Where it's just like, oh, you want someone who can do kind of everything, but then also kills you with your power? That's Marta Kostiuk on the women's side, who we talked about the last time we had you on the show. Um, That would be Sasha Bublik on the men's side. Where it's just like, when he hits that top gear, you just kind of stand there and you're like, man, like this guy's talented. Like, what? What? And so yeah, that that's the response to watching him play. When he plays his best, you just you think the world of Sasha Bublik. So I agree. He's on the list. You know who's the inverse of Sasha Bublik? The next player on my list. Oh no, not you, Kanyev. The next <laughs> player on my list, Miramir Kasmenovic, who I'm gonna be honest, I don't know why I'm including. Do I think he's gonna make the second week of the US Open? No, probably not. But I have a theory that listeners know. That anytime you write Miamir Kasmanovich off, that's when he goes on his run. And just, the man's a machine. Like watching him practice at the City Open, former world junior number one, game screams, I spent my life at IMG Academy, which Miamir Kasmanovich did. I just think he's good. Like, I. Still only 20, I want to say 22 years. Oh, it turns 22 at the end of this month. So it will be 22 August 31st. Should he make it to the second week of the U.S. Open, you look for his season. It's not been a great year. There's no denying that he's 21 and 26 over his last 52 weeks, 12 and 19 here this season. Yes, he's lost his last four matches. I'm well aware of that fact. I just. There's a quality about him, David. I can't explain it. Three out of five sets, the physicality of that, his relentlessness, match in, match out, set in, set out. You look for him at the Grand Slams in his career. Here how, here's how he's done of late. And by the way, I'm finding this out on the fly, so we're going to learn these answers together. Wimbledon, five set loss to Bautista Goot. He beat Fasundo Bagnus first round. French Open. Beats Dan Evans in four, loses to Laszlo Jure, a great clay court player, in five sets. Australia wins its first round straight set loss to Manorino. Last year, it was a straight set loss to Schwarzman, first round Roland Garros, fourth at loss to Bautista Agut, second round U.S. Open. Year before, second round loss to Lorenzi, five sets U.S. Open. I think he's a guy who thrives in the three out of five set format because of his physicality, because of how consistent he is over that range, and the upside is not nearly as high as an Opelka and a Bublik. And by the way, I'm seeing your WTA roots and the power tennis types you seem to uh, be you seem to be picking on your list. And there's no by the way shame in that. Um, but Kesmenevich is the op- is the grinder. Kesmenevich is the outlier of the group that I just think there's a place for, like. To say modern day Ferrer, that's way too much of a stretch. Modern day Simone as the best version of Miamir Kasmanovic, I don't hate it. Like, I I don't think it's quite there, but I don't hate it.
0: Well, I love that he is one half of my one of my favorite boy bands on the ATP Tour. Him and Casper <laughs> Rood, when they team up to play doubles, there's a really great photo of them under an umbrella in Roland Garros from a few years ago that is just classic. Um, I mean, he's starting, it's funny when you look at him the statistics and you break them down, he does appear to be on an upward trajectory. It's just a very slow, gentle curve. And it's funny, it's, thinking of him as a more defensive player, I was actually going to compare him on the WTA side to a Tamea Babos, just someone who seems to have like all of the raw ingredients. How about
1: Cerebez to... Tormo? <sighs>
0: sure, but I think- but I it's think more of,
1: polished, you're right, you're right. Yeah, I think yeah. of
0: someone who, like if, he, if I was between Babos and Sara, if I, I mean, looking at Bob Bush, as, I remember seeing Bob Bush as a junior, thinking that she was so obviously physically talented and just had these abilities, but then even then choked a set in 5-4 lead to a young Lauren Davis at the U.S. Open in 09 one for you um and and <laughs> similarly struggles at the slams bapos and uh, kekmanovic having yet to make it past the second round um i was encouraged by his decision at the start of the year to work with davi nubandi and that seemed like a, a a boss hire i haven't heard any updates from that i don't know if you saw him in dc or if you know that they have split or so not split. i'm gonna
1: be honest i saw me Kasmenovich in dc he was wearing a luka Doncic jersey my first reaction is that luka Doncic hitting on these city open courts and then i watched the forehand i was like oh no nope, that's kasmanovich and <laughs> so i did not look at the coaching situation i should have but it, that's a good that's another good point is that again he too big to fail is probably too that's what we say to my little brother too big to fail he's just had too many resources too many people who have his back, he will never fail. Um, Kaczmenevic's game, it just feels a little bit like, look, this guy was built to be top 50. He's going to be top 50 forever. And it, when you're top 50 forever, you have occasional runs to the second week of
0: slams. For sure. I mean, he's already peaked inside the top 40, which is, for someone lacking a, si- a sort of signature results, like, that's incredibly impressive. Won his first title last fall, but it's it's so under the radar. And, I, and and to compare him, I guess, to another WTA player, I think of an Annette Kantavite, just a player who is obviously gifted, obviously talented, and looking for that signature win, signature result. Because if you look on the micro level um, with Ke- with Keksmanovich, you you see the potential. But then when you kind of... He's someone that's sort of more than... The, his the Some of his parts are bigger than the whole at this point, if that makes sense. I think we do want to see that sort of breakthrough win and perhaps it could come here made the the second round of the last two u.s open appearances that he played and took a set from bautista Agut in the second round not a bad loss but i think you know we want to see a little bit more it's it's again it's that sort of you want that you, w- you want something to really hang your hat on when you're looking for someone to make a, a dark horse run at the us open and i feel like he's he can have it and there are there are signs pointing it's like the stop it's the step before the step there are signs pointing to the potential now i want i want to get to the potential
1: i agree with you i think again we're waiting for that because there's no flashy weapon there's no obvious pop from your castman it's going to be death by a thousand paper cuts and yeah i agree that's why i like seeing him in the three out of five set format i always think that's an opportunity for him to shine his biggest strength and that's why i want to see it from him here just to continue to show yeah it's as you mentioned a slow growth curve But I am still on the upwards trajectory that so many thought I was capable of. Uh, All right. With that said, I promised you under an hour. We're now officially over the hour mark. So that's it. I'll open up the field. Any any final players I'm missing? Any guys on your list? I don't want to miss out on anyone.
0: I mean, we could still talk about Casper Root. I could talk about him all day. Do so you long, want to do two minutes, minutes on Root.
1: To... No, give me <laughs> sure. two minutes on Ruud then, because I don't want to cut you off. Because again, I know yeah. I feel like you don't get to talk ATP tennis as much as you no,
0: should. No, he's <laughs> he's a funny one. I mean, it, it's so fascinating to see that sort of rivalry slash feud brewing between him and Nick Kyrgios because you you couldn't find two more opposite players on paper but in some ways it's it's a dichotomy that Rude has really taken to heart because I read a quote from him talking about how he doesn't consider himself a particularly flashy player and yet when I watch him I I mean the forehand is Phenomenal. It's it's you know, it's the sort of thing that you watch these young players and you think that's a shot that could win you a grand slam. Now, maybe that grand slam would come on is more likely to come on clay for Casper, but I think over the last decade we've seen plenty of clay court players transition very easily to hard courts and vice versa. Had some solid results um, in the US Open Swing, has so much momentum from winning all of those titles. I think a lot of people were poo-pooing. The um, the usefulness of you know for all the players who decided they weren't going to play the Olympics, no one took more advantage of that uh, opportunity than Kaspar Rude. And I think you know, coming into the U.S. Open, he the one difference with him, and I think it's in, maybe in a way similar to Azverev, is that that five-set match. I mean, not getting it done at Wimbledon or in Ro- at Roland Garros against Davidovich Fokina, which really was a match befitting of a later stage of the tournament. Unfortunately only happened in the third round but when he won that fourth set six oh i really thought that he was going to turn it around but the fact that he kind of lost those close matches gives me a little bit of pause you know i just that's that's a little surprising to me but i think if it's if it's going to happen it really you would think it should happen now with all of the momentum and confidence at his back
1: when you make the push for top 10, how can you argue the scheduling decision? I mean, he right now has qualified for the year-end finals. W- fourth round at the US Open, he will pretty much have locked up his spot because it's going to be really mm. hard for anyone else barring, you know, them winning uh an ATP Masters event down the home stretch, winning a, you know, one of the maybe a Paris or something like that to catch him just in the race and so <laughs>
0: Joe Conte will tell you that's not impossible. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Two not, years in a row. Not but impossible. For sure, I guess to your point. <laughs>
1: but unlikely. And by the way, he's seventh. So it's like, okay, that person can knock out Hoobie. But I'm still yeah. above Hubi. And it's like, you look at the gap between him and, so he's right now about 600 points against, uh, ahead of ninth place center. He's 900 points pretty much, or 825, excuse me, which is not the same as 900, 825 ahead of Karatsev. That's a sizable lead, though, David. That is a sizable lead, and so how can you fault that? I agree with you. Now, the question for him, of course, is his win percentage on hard courts is a lot closer to 500 than it is his win percentage on clay courts in ATP-level matches. But did anyone watch these past two weeks on the hard court and think his game's going to have any issues? Like, the consistency he brings over the course of three out of five sets, and he made third round of Australian Open this year, and just— uh, for me, it, the 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 win loss record is a reflection of a lack of sample size, not a reflection of his level on hard courts. So I agree with you. If he holds seed and he's going to be a top ten seed, probably or right around it, and makes the quarterfinals, that's more expected than surprising in my mind.
0: And in some in some respects, he benefits from not taking this momentum straight into Roland Garros. I mean, because we did see how well he played on clay and then sort of underperformed at Roland Garros, but we've seen those kinds of players have sort of that delayed onset breakthrough where you build up this head of steam and you think you're gonna do well on a particular slam and then ends up happening two or three slams later on a surface that maybe you weren't even expecting to peak on. So I think that's something that benefits him. I think it's just getting over the hump of that tough five set match that he's favored to win. Is a very specific alchemy that you know a lot of players struggle with when they are just making that transition from you know sub top fifty player now very quickly to top ten and very likely top eight seed now, I, I believe, so I think it's um nothing but up for Casper for sure, yeah Just no. a very serious man, I really yeah.
1: appreciate it <laughs> I, I you you also know he's going to become the best version of himself, like no doubt about that he will become the best tennis player he can be. I have Hatchinov on the list. Less a dark horse than a reminder. It's really hard to beat him three out of five sets. That guy's as fit as any player you were going to find on the ATP Tour. And if you look at like his last 15 or 16 slams, he's made third round or better at, I think, 13 or 14 of them. Unless you're a seed or you play the best tennis of your career, you are not going to beat Karen Hatchinov in the first three rounds of a Grand Slam I mean, outside of him, I'm looking at the other names I have on the list. I have Emil Roussevori. I mean, you could talk about Carlos Alcaraz, Musetti. I could talk about any of the next-gen guys if you have any left on your list. Again, we're going to get to the Americans like Corda and Tiafo a little bit later. Any other names I'm missing, David? Any other dark no. horses you would point out?
0: No, I agree on And In one respect, it's someone very close to me gave me sort of a dark prediction that— uh, Hashinoff might be one of those silver medalists that you're going to have to Google in 20 years to say, oh, you know, he won a silver medal, but at the same time, I mean, I I give him such respect for winning that crazy, crazy, crazy match against Sebi Korda at Wimbledon, a match that I fully expected Korda to walk away with, especially once things started to get tight and the amount of times that uh, Karin failed to serve out that match fairly spectacularly at times in that fifth set. Um, to the point where I really gave him really good odds against um, Shapovalov in, in the quarters before Dennis really just unlocked and unleashed what, what we know he's capable of. But yeah, I think he's just a brick wall and he's one of those players who who's not going to necessarily beat himself. I wish his forehand grip was a little bit more versatile because it could be a little bit, it can get under threat when someone is playing really well. But I think for sure, certainly someone who I would look to see back up that Olympic result, at least in the short term, sort of inspired by that Roc, good feelings that uh, that seemed like a lot of fun to uh, to watch from the sidelines.
1: Yeah, I, I, I just again, it, it's really rock solid, and for him, confidence has been so critical, and he.
0: Roc had... solid. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> yes,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I I hope the wink translates. Westhoff well, throwing a wink sound effect there, so everyone knows what he did. But oh, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> never mind. No sound effect needed. Um, no, these are all good names. I mean, do you want to make the popper in case like? No. Um, I'm just trying to think of other – I mean, Kyrios sure, looms above everything else. If he's healthy, I don't – I will be more surprised if Andy Murray does than doesn't make the second week. And believe me, that's not Andy Murray's slander. That's just a reflection of reality. If you're a true Andy Murray fan, realism has set in and you just – you realize that win over Ota was more highway robbery than anything else. Um, So you can see the depression has set in now that I brought it up. Um (laughs) No, I, I'm. I guess my final question I would ask you, David, outside of Novak Djokovic, how open is this field? How likely is it that we see dark horses emerge, whether it's third round, fourth round, quarterfinals? These unseeded or lower seeded players have success in the context of where we're at right now in men's tennis. <sighs> It's yeah, Barbara Walters thing, question for you to end. Yeah, Big it's thinker. just,
0: it's just hard to imagine a universe in which Djokovic goes out early, that everybody else left in the draw is going to be a perfectly reasonable, you know, person who could win this U.S. Open. I think if you're you're looking at a djokovic list section of the draw, or you know, at a point where he's no longer in the tournament, should he lose early, I think it's an opportunity as much for uh anybody to potentially win their first slam because none of them have done it before very few of them have even been in a finals and then we saw how Zverev performed in his last u.s open final we saw how sitsipas performed under pressure in his first grand slam final the fact that they'll have this will potentially have been their second slam final at the us open will give them perhaps a little bit of a leg up but i think without djokovic i in when it comes down to those Again, I keep talking. I go back to those margins, I go back to mental toughness, go back to like just the pressure. I think the the guys who you're not thinking of in between the lines have as much of a shot as much as that people as much as some players have proven themselves mathematically and statistically. I think some of that can kind of fly out the window if you're Daniel Medvedev and you're an over suddenly an overwhelming favorite to win the US Open because Djokovic went out early for example. I think there's just a certain mental shift that takes place i mean if, and if one of them can barrel through that and win their first grand slam more power to them and i think that they're the ones that you would say could potentially go on to win t- 10 of 13 slams but um i it's just based on how that u.s open shook out without Djokovic. i think that's a pretty good blueprint for what could potentially happen if the olympics the ghost of olympics pass continue to haunt novak at the early stages of the u.s open in a week a yeah. week
1: <laughs> no, it's it's crazy to think. Yeah, we are less than seven days away from the start of the 2021 U.S. Open. Of course, we will continue our coverage here throughout the week, to have equivalent conversations on the men's uh, – on the women's side, excuse me, talk about the men's contenders, talk about all of the Americans in the field, maybe do some college tennis talk, break down all the draws as well. Of course, David, I know it's busy times right now over at Tennis Channel. Of course, obviously, Tennis Channel Podcast Network, as you can tell, rocking and rolling, but what else do you have coming down? the pipelines as we look towards the year's final grand slam
0: what am i looking for i'm looking forward to us open qualifying we didn't get it last year no one was allowed on the grounds i'm looking forward to picking up my credential and getting to see all my old friends (laughs) the ones who didn't either retire or graduate into the top 100 i think it's just there's it is for me the most wonderful time of the year i could save the rest of the the drama and intrigue for when the draw comes out because then i think that's when everything flies out the window if you end up with you know no. <laughs> you end up with a, a potential djokovic curio's first round I think that's when everything everything really comes home to roost as, as not not to completely denigrate the entire premise of this preview but I think <laughs> <that's> <laughs> that when the draw comes out that's when I'll really be hunkering down on the on the reality at hand in the meantime I'll, I'll stick with my, my fantasy tennis over at Qualies
1: no of course and where can everyone find the work
0: oh it's uh, tennis.com or tennis.com slash baseline. Or you can find it promoted on Twitter uh, at dk tennis, Twitter and Instagram at DKTNS.
1: Of course, you'll know you hit the right page when you see the double Emma Roberts gif. But, of course, David Kenyev, thank you so much, as always, for taking the time to join the show. Be safe, be healthy, enjoy New York, and I'm sure we will talk to you again soon.
0: Moi drug, spasibo.
1: Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with Tennis.com and Tennis Channel editorial producer David Kane. A huge thank you to him, as always, for taking the time to chat. We always have a good time, and again, do not be surprised to hear from him again soon on one of our Cracked Rackets podcasts. Be sure to follow all of his work as truly you're not going to find anyone better in the business. Of course, again, this is the first of all of our U.S. Open preview podcasts. We've got men's contenders, women's dark horses and contenders, an American tennis update, and so much more planned for all of you over the course of the week. You can find all of the content on our website, crackrackets.com. Of course, like, rate, subscribe, review. To this show, the Mini Break podcast, the Cracked Interviews podcast, all of our CrackRackets content. You need the more immediate updates. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. We are at CrackRackets. you want to message me directly, I'm at GreatShotPod. A shout-out, as always, to... to... To our super producers, Max Fliegner and Daniel Westoff for the (laughs) f*** of an editing job they do day in, day out. A shout-out as well to our friends over at Turner Tennis. Remember, contact sales at uniquesports.com or call 800-554-3707. With all that said, for our fantastic guest, David Kane, super producers, Fliegner and Westoff, our friends at Turner. And from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. Hey, great shot, and we'll see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. (music) Thank <music> you.